Let me briefly say, some of you, uh, I mentioned in men's life change or life change class, I was going to speak to the men today at, uh, after the services in our, in our class. That is not going to happen today. That will happen next week because I forgot. So I'm standing down here worshiping. Noah comes up next to me and goes, you're going to speak in life change? I'm like, what? He said, why don't you do it next week? So I was supposed to be there at the beginning of this service and completely forgot. But I have an excuse. My wife is out of town. So I'm just happy to be here clothed and somewhat in my right mind. Um, but, but guys, I will come next week because my wife will be back in town. I will come next week and speak with you all uh, briefly at the beginning of Life Change class next week. Um, you ever go to the grocery store and just get totally stupefied by the plethora of choices that you encounter? Uh, I mean, just bum-fuzzled. You just don't know what... What to choose. For instance, uh, Crest toothpaste. There are 27 varieties of Crest toothpaste. 27 varieties of Crest. Um, there are 53 varieties of Campbell's soup. There are, uh, if you try to get Breyer's ice cream. Um, natural, French, half the fat, no sugar added, extra creamy, homemade, lactose-free, or carb-smart. And that is just vanilla. Uh, Cheerios, original, um, honey nut, honey nut medley crunch, apple cinnamon, banana nut, frosted, chocolate, multigrain, multigrain, peanut butter, dolce de leche, <laughs> and cinnamon burst, Cheerios. Um, Tide, original scent, plus Febreze, plus Febreze Sport, free and gentle, plus bleach alternative, cold water, clean breeze, mountain spring, plus downy with Actolife. Head and shoulders. This is shampoo, for gosh sakes. One brand of shampoo. Active sport, old spice, deep clean, hair endurance, refresh, extra strength for men, citrus breeze, ocean lift, dry scalp care with almond oil, classic clean, sensitive scalp care, itchy scalp with eucalyptus, smooth and silky, extra volume, green apple, damage rescue, extra strength, clinical strength, plus seven more. Okay. Um, uh, Consumer Report did a survey of about 3,000 shoppers and found that over a third of us were overwhelmed by the information they had to process to make a buying decision, right? The internet doesn't help. But at some point, you just have to say, let's just chill and get some Cheerios, all right? You just have to say, just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and grab some Cheerios. Um, because it's not, it's not that big of a decision. It's not a life and death decision, but it can be puzzling. Um, there is, however, a whole other category of decision um, that matters, that is really life and death, that really you need to give careful attention to. And C.S. Lewis writes really wisely about those weightier decisions. He says, every time you make one of these choices... You are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that's in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. 
Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. And that is exactly what the author of Hebrews has been helping us with. He is warning us, do not drift away from Jesus and his message. It's one of those heaven or hell kind of drifting experiences. Do not drift away from him, he says. In chapter 2, it started this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And, and if we are thinking and in our right minds, why would we drift away from Jesus and his message? Right? You remember how the book of Hebrews started Back in the very first chapter, it paints this portrait of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he says, don't drift. Don't drift away from Jesus. Don't let your heart and mind, your loves, your affections, your commitments drift away from Jesus. Don't neglect this great salvation, the greatest possible salvation. Don't drift away from it. There's nothing better on the shelf than what Jesus brings to us, who he is and what he brings for us. Now, Noah taught us last week in a very, very difficult section of Scripture to see that even though Jesus is greater than the angels, um, for a little while that equation changed and he became less than the angels. Verse 9, you remember, it says, We see for a little while... We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So though Jesus is greater than the angels, as Hebrews 1 taught us, Hebrews 2 says that he became less than or lower than the angels in order to do what we could not do for ourselves, what even the angels, the majestic beings like the angels couldn't do for us, he tasted death for us in our place. Okay. And today, the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 2, starting in verse 10, is helping us pay much closer attention to the teaching of Jesus, to this great salvation, so we won't drift away from it. And that the book of Hebrews is not an easy read. It's challenging. And his intention is to help us think carefully, think deeply, think 
accurately about Jesus and his message. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Hebrews 2, chapter 2, we'll do verse 10 through 18 through the end of the chapter uh, today, Lord willing. And I'd like to pray for us as we open that up. Okay, let's do it. Father, have mercy on us now as your people. We open our minds and our ears and our lives to the teaching of your word. Um, Lord, constrain my words that it might match yours and exalt yours and serve your good purposes in our lives. So have mercy on us now, Father. Help us to hear and to obey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, he starts by reminding us in verse 10 that this plan of salvation that God has for us, it's a good plan. Um, Verse 10 says, It was fitting that he, God that is, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, or as Daniel called it, the captain of our salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. So, It's fitting. It makes perfect sense. It's consistent with who God is and how he works. This is a good plan that he's about to talk about. It's a good plan that Jesus should become one of us and suffer. It's God's good plan. It's fitting that the creator would unfold a plan that reconciles his broken world to him especially that reconciles broken people to him. And that's, that's the idea behind that phrase, bringing many sons to glory. Okay? That's bringing us back to, to him, to God, our glorious God. And the language of the Bible can sometimes be puzzling because it's first century language, right? Bringing many sons to glory. Well, what about the daughters? Okay, what happens to the daughters? And um, again, it's helpful. Here's uh, George Guthrie helps. He says, sons in the ancient world held a position of honor and responsibility not held by daughters in the ancient world. And so the author of Hebrews, he says, uses sons to refer to all the people of God, male and female, as God's honored children and receptors of inheritance. So he says, when a female Christian reads that Jesus brings many sons to glory, she should interpret the statement as meaning Jesus brings me to glory as an honored child for whom there awaits an inheritance. So it is sons and daughters, but it's with all that first century sons received in the inheritance. And it makes sense. That the creator would bring his many children to share in his glory, to be with him, to be like him, and to know him. It makes sense. It's a good plan that he would accomplish this through the founder, the pioneer, the champion, the captain of their salvation. Being made perfect through suffering. And that's another expression that is a little perplexing. What does it mean that Jesus, our founder, our captain, our champion of salvation, um, is made perfect through suffering. Was he imperfect? Was Jesus flawed? And God had to improve on him? And that kind of thinking is is fraught with all kinds of 
of problems. Um, it's not that he had flaws that he needed ironed out, as you and I do. But perfect here is used in a, maybe in a deeper sense. As one writer put it, perfection in Hebrews has to do with fully completing a course or a task. Making it to the end of God's plan. So when Jesus was made perfect through suffering, that, that means his full obedience to his mission of death on the cross happened. Okay? He completed it. He perfected it. And once again, we see that Jesus' suffering and, and even his death okay, was not some kind of colossal misstep. It's part of, of the good plan of God. It's not some kind of deviation. It's not some kind of colossal misstep that happened. The, the Unification Church, which is a, um, a cult offshoot of Christianity that happened in Korea, um, they believe that the cross happened because John the Baptist failed in his mission to prepare the way. And the result was they nailed Jesus to the cross. And the writer of Hebrews here is saying, no, it's fitting that the founder of their salvation should be made perfect through suffering. And that suffering he has in view is death. Okay. Um, Reverend Moon and his Unification Church have it all wrong. It makes perfect sense, he says, the writer of Hebrews says here, it fits the way God works that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through sufferings, the greatest of sufferings. He should accomplish his mission through the cross. Verse 11 says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. You could say it this way. Jesus is the one who makes people holy, and we who believe are those who are made holy. And we all have one source. It could be a reference to God, or it could be a reference that we are all from one, we're all descended from Adam, the first man. And in light of what follows, I'm going to lean in that direction. That when it says that uh, we all have one source, he who makes us holy and he, those who are made holy have one source, he's essentially saying we all have one father, Adam. We're, we're all men. We're all part of mankind, humankind. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He is our brother. This is the plan that Jesus should become one of us. It's a good plan, he's saying. But to some, it seems like a crazy plan. Many Muslims think that it's crazy that we would say that God would become one of us and then suffer and die for us. There's a Christian author and minister, John Dixon, and he was speaking on a university campus in Sydney, Australia, on the subject of the wounds of God. And he said, during the question time, a Muslim man rose to explain how preposterous was the claim that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, go to the toilet, 
let alone die on a cross. And Dixon said that this man's remarks were intelligent, they were clear, they were civil, and the man went on to argue that it was illogical that God, the cause of all causes, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. And Dixon, you know, it's a Q&A session, so he, he thinks for a minute, and he doesn't have this knockdown argument or this witty comeback to this guy. Finally, he simply thanks the man for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. And then he did say this, and I think this is really wise. He said, what the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds precious. God has wounds. We believe it was a good plan for God to come to earth as a man and suffer for us. It's a remarkable idea, that little phrase, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He became like us, is what it's saying. He became a man. And so there's a sense in which we could say Jesus is our big brother. And if you have a big brother, you know that they are not always excited to have you around. Sometimes they're ashamed of you. I remember my, my older brother... He was, he's a fascinating guy. Um, he's 11 years older than me. And he had this friend named Wayne. And Wayne had a, a brother who was a couple years younger than him in high school uh, named Jim. And my brother and Wayne and some other guys were going out to the lake to get in the usual mischief that they got into out at the lake. And Jim, the younger brother of Wayne, wanted to come along. Wayne did not want Jim to come, so he says to Jim, You can come, but you have to ride in the trunk. So Wayne closed his little brother in the trunk of the car and drove him out to the lake. And that's how desperate Jim wanted to be with his older brother. You know, but by contrast, I remember, again, my brother's 11 years older. So he moved out of the house when he's like 18 years old. So I was probably 8 or 10, maybe 10 when this happened. But uh, my brother was a car guy. And he had, um, it was either a late 60s, early 70s Corvette. Yeah really nice and he had a wonderful girlfriend named Diane who later became his wife and um, my brother and his girlfriend decided they were gonna ask me to go with them in the Corvette okay I don't even remember where we went if we're going to a movie if we're going to the Dairy Queen or where we're going but I was gonna get to ride between my brother and his girlfriend on the console it's a two-seater car right so you had to shit you have to sit Sit. You have to sit. I would never have ridden in my brother's car again if I did that. But you have to sit. You have to sit in the center between the seats. Dang. With many words, there is much folly. Yeah. Um, so, so, so I remembered. You know, they they put like a blanket or something on the on the console, and I get to ride with my brother and his girlfriend in the Corvette, right? Now, why do I remember this to this day? Okay. Because my older brother wanted me around. He made special effort to include me. And, and, and he had a vet, for gosh sakes, and a girlfriend. So it was the coolest thing ever. Um, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is stunning. 
Jesus became one of us so that he could call us, again, his brothers, and we would say in the same sense as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. He is not ashamed of us, though he knows us. All our sorry thoughts and selfish acts, all the times when he invited us into his company and we had something better to do, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And that implies the opposite. He's eager. He's glad. He is willing to sacrifice his place with God and come and be one of us so he could call us family, brothers and sisters. Um, and so now the, the writer, he goes on, he's going to quote again, as he loves to do, three Old Testament quotes to kind of back this up. Okay. The uh, verses 12 through 13 contain those. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And the the writer of Hebrews was, a, was really skilled at quoting the Old Testament, and honestly, it escapes us many times as to how he's deploying that skill. But he's quoting here from Psalm 22 and from Isaiah. The last two quotes come likely from Isaiah chapter 8. And both of them have context to do with persecution and righteous suffering and were read by the early church as messianic prophecies of the crucifixion. In fact, Psalm 22, where that first quote comes from, is what Jesus was quoting when he was on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22. And the purpose of citing these passages of suffering points to Christ's solidarity with us in our suffering, in our humanity. And he is with us when we worship in spite of our suffering and even our persecution, Christ is with us. And I suppose there's a sense in which when we gather on Sunday mornings, Christ is with us, worshiping the Father. He is with us as we trust God in our suffering, the Isaiah quote indicates. He claims us as family, the children that God has given to him. He is not ashamed of us. He has gone before us. He stands with us in our suffering. He is one with us. And this oneness is accomplished by his becoming one of us, what we call the incarnation. Okay. When the Son of God takes on human flesh and becomes a man born of woman. And this incarnation of God as a man, it's a good plan, the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's a good plan. It gives a great salvation. It's predicted by the Old Testament. And now, the rest of our passage, he's going to list a whole bunch of reasons why it's the, the best plan ever. Okay. Look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, okay, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And again, this is, this is the language of Christmas. This is the language of incarnation, that Jesus, the Son of God, became a man and took on human flesh and blood. Okay. He partook of the same things, the same 
essence as us. And this is so familiar to us to almost lose the wonder of what it is that Christ did when he became like us. And, um, there's a fa- uh, here's a story to help you think about just in terms of wonder. Matt Woodley, he writes about this. He says, in his everyday life, a guy named Charles Foster is a respected veterinarian, a practicing lawyer, and a teacher at Oxford University. But as noted in his book, Being a Beast, Foster also has an unusual practice. Every so often, Foster tries to live like a badger. Yeah. So, <laughs> he, he usually does this alone, though for a few days he went with his eight-year-old son, Tom. On a friend's farm, they made a human-sized badger home, a 15-foot-long hole that they would sleep in. Charles says he's probably spent six weeks living underground like this over the years, sleeping during the day, awake at night like real badgers. For Foster, the main part of living like a badger involves getting low to the ground, crawling around on his hands and knees. He also blindfolds his eyes because badger's eyesight is terrible, and he eats earthworms since 85% of a badger's diets consist of worms. Why? Right? But Woodley goes on, he says, Now as strange and even repugnant as this sounds, think of something even stranger and potentially more repugnant, the God of all creation, who exists in perfect beauty and splendor, becomes a human being, lives on our fallen planet, and there was no escape for a full human lifetime. Jesus Christ came to us, not just as an interesting nature experiment, nor was he repulsed by us. He came out of love to rescue us from our sin. His humiliation in becoming one of us was purposeful, and it has amazing benefits for us. And he lays them out in the next few verses. Why this was the best, the very best of plans that Jesus should become a man and suffer for us. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus became one of us that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's interesting, um, there's a survey done that almost 60% of, um, of Americans believe in the existence of the devil and about 30% deny the devil's existence. Um, but 40% of millennials say that Satan is not a real being but just a symbol of evil. And so, to be clear here, for something to be destroyed, it must first exist. The writer of Hebrews is assuming that there is a being called the devil or Satan that exists. He's real. He's not just a literary device. Jesus became one of us so he could destroy the devil by his death on the cross. He had to become one of us so that he could die. And by that death, he would destroy the devil. And by destroy, the idea here is not 
obviously obliterate or cause to cease to exist. But the idea seems to be that he took away his power. He, he neutered him so that he could no longer wield death for his dark purposes. Um, he could no longer use death to enslave us by fear of death. The plan for Jesus to become one of us and to suffer and even die for us, it's a good plan because, he says, by it, Jesus has destroyed the devil. He has robbed him of his power. And by this good plan, he has delivered us from the fear of death. Again, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the fear of death is really an enslaving thing. You could ask Larry King about it. Larry King, um, he takes four human growth hormone pills every day and he claims he feels great. Um, He's like, I don't know, 80 81, on his eighth wife, feels great. Um, But in case of death, King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out when researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him, the so-called cryonics approach. And King told the interviewer later that the people behind cryonics are all nuts. But at least if he knows he will be frozen, he will die with a shred of hope. Other people have no hope, he said. And then there's billionaire Peter Thiel, who has invested heavily in organizations like the SENS Foundation, which is devoted to developing rejuvenation biotechnologies. And William Andreg, who's the founder of a Silicon Valley nanotech firm, who claims that he plans to live for millions, billions, and hundreds of billions of years. But his tech firm that does this just went out of business quietly. Um, There's Russian transhumanist multimillionaire Dmitry Itzkov who launched the 2045 initiative that the promise that humans will be immortal by the year 2045, just as soon as we make a leap into artificial machine bodies. By death, by death, by his death, Jesus frees us from the folly of the fear of death. He frees us from the fear of loss of control, of failure, of separation from our loved ones, the fear of the unknown. Perhaps most terrifying of all, he he frees us from the fear of judgment and punishment for our sins. By his death, Jesus frees us from the fear of the unknown because he's gone before us and he was raised from the dead and now offers us himself as a forerunner, as a guide, as a founder of our salvation. Our failures are not held against us. His death has nailed him to the cross and he has paid the penalty. And he's promised us that what awaits those of us who believe in him is not eternal punishment, but eternal life. And the glimpse of it, glimpses of it in the pages of scripture are enthralling. Listen to Revelation 22, as it describes what waits for us in our salvation. He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Can you give me that next slide, please? Thank you. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This, he says, in verse 16, he says, he did for us, his brothers, his sisters, not, not for the angels. This is what waits us. We need not fear death. There is more, there is more to the goodness of this plan in verse 17. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, he says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Okay? Jesus became like us in every respect. Max Lucado puts his imagination in hours to work when he writes, angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with him he had, and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds, burped, had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light, he says, is... Well, it almost seems irreverent, doesn't it? It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation, clean the manure from around the manger, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. But this, all of this, is part of God's good plan. He took on all of this. He became like his brothers in every respect, save sin, except sin, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. Okay. If you need a high priest, you want him to be merciful and faithful. Kent Hughes helps us think about these traits. He says, all good husbands are compassionate and merciful when their wives give birth. Okay. But how much more merciful would they be if they first had the experience themselves of giving birth? Made like their wives in every respect, in body, in hormones, in the pain of childbirth. They would be then merciful indeed. He says, oh, the depth of Jesus' mercy 
for he was made like us in every way. He says his faithfulness to God is seen as he was faithful as mankind's sin bearer. He did everything required. Nothing deterred him from the cross. He drank the bitter cup to its dregs. Our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. Never has there been such faithfulness. And as our high priest, the writer of Hebrews says, he does a couple of things as part of this good, good plan of God. He offers a sacrifice for our sins. The language is he made propitiation for the sins of his people. Some of your Bibles will use the word atonement uh, for the sins of the people. And the ideas behind this language are twofold. He carries our sins away. He carries them away from us and we need not bear them anymore. And secondly, he also bears away the wrath of God. As our sin is no longer held against us, as the penalty has been paid in full by Jesus' death in our place on the cross, God's wrath has been satisfied in Christ. And God is now free to justly lavish his good pleasure on us. His delight, his joy, because Jesus bore the fullness of his wrath on the cross. That's behind that language of propitiation. He took the wrath for us. This is the very best of plans. And verse 18 ends this litany of reasons that this plan is good, that Jesus should become one of us and suffer with these words. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, because he was tempted and did not yield, his suffering was the greatest suffering that could be imagined. Philip Hughes says, Jesus knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know so that he can help us when we are tempted. He has outlasted the greatest of temptations. He has faced even death and conquered. By his victory, ours is promised and made sure. Jesus, because he has tempted, suffered and tempted and prevailed, he, he is there to help us. You know, yesterday, again, I stood at graveside. And we laid to rest the body of a, of a husband and a father and a grandfather. And we read these words. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Don't drift from this message. It's our only great hope when faced with death itself. Okay. Don't drift away from Jesus and the salvation he brings. There's no better plan. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the devil. He's greater than our fears. He's greater than our sins. He's greater than our sufferings. He's greater than our temptations. Jesus is greater. Okay. Don't drift from Jesus. 
Don't get preoccupied with something lesser. Don't give your heart, the supreme place of your heart, to something lesser. Don't neglect him and the great salvation that he brings. Consider carefully. The writer of Hebrews tells us, consider carefully what he has done for us by becoming incarnate, by becoming one of us, just like us. So let me give you an assignment. All right? You up for an assignment? Depends on what it is, right? It's a, it's a good assignment. And it happens before the game starts. Okay? Whew. Thought I was going to make you come back here in the middle of the game, didn't you? No, it's before the game starts, right? This afternoon, before the Super Bowl, just sit down by yourself. Or you could do it with someone in your household if you'd like. Read this passage again and just think carefully about the salvation that comes to us through God's good plan that Jesus should become one of us and suffer for us. Just read it and just think and just give thanks. Okay? Slow down. Take some time. Think carefully because the writer of Hebrews has written these things for us so that if we think carefully about them, we will not drift. And now as we close, let's think about it as we sing this song. It declares this. We sang it earlier. Our captain of salvation, bringing us to your glory, our life and resurrection. You loved us in your suffering. Our perfect mediator, the just and justifier. Our brother, strong redeemer, our risen, reigning Savior. Let's stand. As the team readies, 